Welcome to Piedmont Arts, made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. I'm Rachel Stewart. Joshua Gerson is the guest conductor with the Charlotte Symphony for concerts in the Knight Theater on March 25th and 26th. He recently concluded his tenure as the assistant conductor of the New York Philharmonic and was previously music director of the New York uh, Youth Symphony, which he led on a successful international tour, their first in over 50 years. He also led many of the New York Phil's celebrated young people's concerts in his time there. Joshua is a composer as well as conductor. He's a graduate of the New England Conservatory of Music and the Curtis Institute of Music, and he made his conducting debut with the San Francisco Symphony in the fall of 2013 and has been invited back there numerous times to conduct a variety of concerts, and he's conducted concerts around the country. And Joshua, it's great to have you here today. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you about some of your background working with youth orchestras and, and young people's concerts. Is that something that you're looking to do more of, or is it, you know, how do you approach doing that, and, and what is the significance of those programs? It's certainly something that I want to continue doing, uh, no matter where I, I'm working, no matter what orchestra I'm, I'm performing with. Um, you know, education is so important towards sort of the survival of our art form. So often, if you can expose younger people to music that we're performing and get them into the concert hall at a young age, they're so much more likely to want to come back when they're older. And so much of what we've been trying to do in the industry is trying to appeal to a broader audience and get more people when they're middle-aged into the concert hall. I think if we can continue to expose them when they're younger, it'll be much more easier for us. At least from when I was younger towards now, you see so much um, less funding public funding for the arts and schools. I think we need to work even harder to sort of fill that void by providing as much access for young people to the orchestra as possible. So it's certainly something um, that I would want to continue to do wherever I am. Um, and yeah, you know, especially teaching as well, being with the Youth Symphony and, and being able to really um, connect to, try and instruct the next generation of musicians has been something that's been very important to me and that I hope to continue to do as well. You also enjoy or are a champion of new music, new compositions you yourself are a composer um i'm wondering it used how to you... be at least yeah it's it been a while be. <laughs> don't have enough time <laughs> you know i told myself if i couldn't find the time in the pandemic to do it then i'm in i'm in trouble <laughs> so, <laughs> someday i would love to get back into it but yeah i sort of the conducting has been the focus and i, and I do wish that i've been able to compose more in the past years um, than i admittedly have but you've got i'm sure you have some um some some strong feelings or convictions about the place of of our contemporary music in the concert sure. hall um and i'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit it's obviously so important for us as performers as curators to continue to promote perform the music if we're not going to do it you know who is you know of course it's it's always sort of this age-old question how do we do it so that we can really connect um, and get audiences interested in it? this new music can be it's new obviously it can be very complicated um, it's very hard for an audience goer on our first hearing to really understand what, what, what they're hearing the first time it's hard for us as as performers sometimes on a first pass through a new piece to really understand it and connect to it so of course it is really important for us to be pushing this as much as possible I do feel like sometimes we get a little complacent in that. As long as we feel as if we're doing something contemporary, that's enough. That as long as we're sort of checking that box and doing something, we're sort of fulfilling our obligation. And I do think that we can sort of hold ourselves more accountable and hold our composers more accountable as well. I try and be very selective as far as who I'm, I'm programming, which com new composers um, I'm trying to present to the audience. I think it's really important that 
we really believe in the music that we're, we're performing. You know, if we don't believe in it, we don't think it's really great and we don't give the best performance of it possible, then how can we possibly expect the audience to really feel the same way about it? It really is important that we are selective about which composers really feel deserve to be heard, should be heard. It is so easy to compose these days. Um, you know, with all the technology that's available to us, with there basically being no rules, you can write whatever you want and, it, and it's considered okay now, that there's sort of a double-edged sword. I think we sort of can hold all of us more accountable to really making sure that we're promoting the right contemporary music and that we're doing it to the best ability we possibly can. That's interesting that you bring up that uh, the, the changes in technology have made it possible for more people to compose. And, you know, I, I guess I was aware of that on the popular music side, right? Because you don't have to have a, a fancy studio anymore sometimes just to, to put out a pop song or, or, you know, something in that ilk. Sure. But I hadn't thought about that with what might be considered more a, a classical composition. Um, are people who don't have conservatory training actually getting more into composing works like you might hear in the concert hall or not? I don't know of too many contemporary classical composers you're seeing program that have no conservatory training whatsoever. But I do think that because we have so many tools at our disposal now, it is a blessing and a curse. You can be very more experimental with a lot of these things. There are certainly kinds of music and things that we can do now that we could never do before. That's wonderful. But it's also very easy to just plunk something into a computer program and have it play it back for you, having no idea what it's going to sound like. And again, that can be a, a, a real area of discovery, but it can also make it a lot easier for anybody to just try and compose. Um, and there still is a lot of technique that goes into what makes a good, uh, you know, what makes good composition, good composition, just like technique of playing an instrument that um, I do feel like now you can circumvent if you want to, and uh, you certainly shouldn't. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the, um, the music that's on the program that you're going to conduct. There's one piece that I'm not familiar with, and that's the Wallen. Is that how you say it? Yes. And, and did you put this program together or was it I, selected for you? I sort of came into this program sort of halfway through. Um, so there was sort of a cancellation. I was supposed to be coming in a later date. They had cancellation, so I came in now. Um, so the first half of the program was already selected. Um, you know, they sort of offered to change it if I wanted to, but I, you know, I didn't want to. This piece had been programmed. I'm not one to want to take new music that's been programmed the opportunity off a program. So I, I, you know, I said I absolutely would uh, be happy to do the pieces of this program. Uh, the Schumann was, was what we sort of added, what we changed. The Wallen is it's sort of a lovely piece, and it, it was written about 15 years ago now, and it was written to commemorate the 200-year anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade. So Erin Wallen is, is a British composer, and, and she wrote this piece sort of, in, in sort of to commemorate that. And it is a very, it's, it's sort of a very hopeful, very colorful, very optimistic work. It's sort of the foundation of it is sort of centered around these spirituals. Um, you hear a number of these spiritual tunes throughout the piece, sort of most prominently Amazing Grace, which you hear played very simply at the beginning of the, of the work and at the end of the work. And then sort of interspersed throughout the piece, we hear a number of these other tunes as well. Underneath all that, we have this sort of pulsating rhythmic figure in the strings you hear over and over again. It's almost sort of a minimalist sort of piece where you hear this and she adds these layers and layers on top of it and the music kind of builds um, from there. So it's, it's a really interesting piece. It's very well written. And again, it's, it's sort of a very optimistic, forward-looking sort of cheerful piece, obviously celebrating a very important event you know, she, she talks about it where it really is at the core just about sort of a celebration of humanity and, and being interconnected to different people and, you know, giving everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, you know, I think this is a sort of piece that 
certainly when it was programmed, we had no idea, but it's exactly the kind of music we need to be hearing right now. Then you've got the barber, which is, you know, 20th century piece. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting and, and just sort of thinking about the program where I think if you would look at it sort of on face value, you would say, what do these three pieces have to do with each other at all? Right. First, it's interesting that there's the variety. We have three pieces from three different centuries, you know, written in three different places. And there's something to be said for just having that that variety. But they're also, I think, really all connected. If I were marketing this, this program, um, you know, I would sort of call it a song without words program or something like that. Um, certainly, as we just discussed with the Wallen, it's sort of the foundation of the piece are these, these spiritual songs. Um, but with Barbara and Schumann, you have these two composers who are so much rooted in song, um, were so prolific as vocal composers, and that really bleeds into a lot of their orchestral work. Um, and certainly in these two pieces, the Barber and the Schumann, there are so many of these melodies that absolutely could have been uh, put to words. So the Barber really is no exception. It's modern, I suppose it's what, 75, 80 years old now. Um, it's hard to believe, but it's it's interesting. And sort of when the, the concerto was written, a lot of the debate was whether or not it had the merit to belong aside the great violin concertos of the past, the Beethoven's, the Brahms, um, the Tchaikovsky's, et cetera. And I think certainly uh, history has shown that it certainly does. Have you worked with the violinist Jinju Cho before? So an interesting story. Uh, we were classmates at Curtis. Oh. And we were there for a couple of years. And we've sort of since lost touch. We haven't spoken in a while, but we were friends while we were there. So I we've never worked professionally before. So I'm actually really looking forward to doing that. We certainly worked together in, in when we were when we were classmates. So it's been, I won't say how long it's been, but it, it's been a few years. And uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to re reconnecting with her and performing with her uh, for the first time professionally. That's nice. A little reunion. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. Well, tell us a little bit about the Schumann, uh, the Symphony Number no. Three, his Rhenish uh, Symphony. And you said that was a piece that did come into the into the lineup after you were um, given this particular concert. Yeah, it's just always been one of my favorite works. And, and you know, it's also a very interesting work uh, for a couple of reasons. First, you know, when he wrote it, uh, you know, he had, this was towards the, we wouldn't, didn't know it at the time, but towards the end of his life, towards the end of his career. Um, and he wrote this piece as he took a new position as music director in Dusseldorf. So he just moved um, to a new place along the Rhine River, which is part of the inspiration for the symphony. But he was really full of optimism. He sort of connected this to the first piece, The Wallen, as well. It was sort of it was a sort of new life and, and the excitement of being in a new city and a new job. And and the symphony is is very sort of fresh and exciting in that way. There's very little. There are very little minor moments in it that the one movement, the minor movement, the fourth movement is more sort of solemn and noble than it is in any way despairing or anything like that, which let's be honest, a lot of Schumann's music can be known for. Um, so there's a lot of optimism in this piece too. And it's, it's sort of interesting in that in a couple of short years, everything would kind of crumble down for him. This job would really weigh on him. Um, it, it eventually sort of drove him practically insane. And um, it really was one of the root causes for why his life got uh, cut so short. The other interesting thing is Schumann is often criticized for his, for lack of better, lack of imagination as an orchestrator, um, which is certainly a fair criticism, especially in this piece. The interesting thing is that it's not that he was unimaginative or didn't have the capacity as an orchestrator to try different things. It was more probably a practical thing in that he wrote the symphony for um, the orchestra that he was now music director of and was conducting himself. And as all accounts go, he wasn't the most gifted conductor, which is partially why he had so much trouble at the, at the job when he started. And so this piece was almost written to be somewhat conductor proof, 
<laughs> written so that it was easier for the orchestra to play with maybe a not so competent conductor. So that's why you see a lot of doublings in this symphony, in particular, if you look at the, the earlier symphonies, he is a little bit more adventurous with the orchestration. But in this symphony, he is a little bit more conservative um, for more practical reasons than I think a lot of people um, realize. And that being said, he still is able to pull a lot of different colors and imaginative things through the orchestra. I mean, he's he's depicting a lot of specific things throughout the symphony, things that he's seeing around town that are inspiring him. And he does a remarkable job doing that. So I think the knock on him as an orchestrator isn't necessarily fair, or it's certainly not fair for, for the reasons people think. So I'm wondering when you come in as a guest conductor and you don't know, I'm assuming you don't know most of the musicians or or most of the people um, sure. in Charlotte, how do you approach um, you know, preparing a concert with folks that you've never worked with before? That's a great question. I mean, I, I try not to, as far as preparation goes, um, approach things too differently. You know, I've, I've often described when you talk about going to an orchestra for the first time, it's, it's sort of like a first date sort of thing where you sort of are, are, you know each other, you're aware of the reputations, but you've never worked together. You sort of get to know each other over that first rehearsal. And you sort of learn how to communicate. And sometimes it works really well right away. Sometimes it takes a little bit more, a little more time to sort of understand each other. But I try not to approach the beforehand too differently. I mean, you, you prepare as you would prepare for any, any concert and then try and adjust accordingly as you start to interact with the, with the orchestra. And you have to be a little bit flexible to make sure that you know, you're, you're producing the best result. But as far as preparation goes, I, I try and keep it exactly the same and, and go in there and, and, and do what I like to do and, and see how we work together and, and where the response is. And then we, we go from there. I'm sure it'll be a wonderful experience next week. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I think you'll have a good experience. Um this past weekend when they were with um, Christopher Warren Green for their 90th. Sure. It was a great performance, actually. I feel like the, I feel like the orchestra's really doing well right now. So I'm glad should. to hear that. And I, I think everyone's yeah. just so happy to be back in the concert hall performing for hopefully relatively full audiences again. I mean, I know, mm -hmm. um, you know, the energy experiencing that after not being able to for so long has really been, exciting and inspiring. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to being able to perform with them in that in that way as well. Yes. And I imagine you'll have a pretty big audience. So I think, like looking you said, people are hope so. Yeah, people are gl glad to be getting back out. So yeah. I've been talking to Joshua Gerson, who will be the guest conductor with the Charlotte Symphony for concerts in the Night Theater, March 25th and 26th. And you're listening to Piedmont Arts, made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. And I'm Rachel Stewart.